0: Welcome to episode 106 of the Traveling Image Makers podcast with your host Hugo Che. Our guest of today, I've been uh, wanted to talk with him personally for a long time because I've been following uh, his work, not just as a photographer but also as a long-time podcaster. Uh, Juan Pons, welcome, Juan. How are you doing? Oh I'm doing
1: great. Thank you for having me. I've uh, also known you for quite a bit online and look forward to uh, to our conversation. Uh, like I said, first time we've actually spoken in person.
0: First time, yes. I'm always uh, pleasantly surprised when people recognize me. I don't think I'm that famous, but it's, uh, it's a great feeling too be recognized.
1: Yeah. Sometimes, you know, it's funny because that happens to me. I mean, I mean I'm not that famous by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, sometimes I'm on location and people hear my voice and they'll come over and they're like, "Oh, you know, I listen to your podcast." And, you know, it feels good and sometimes it's a little scary at the same time.
0: I had that happen to me a couple of weeks ago. I was in Paris for a, for a photo walk with uh, Valerie Jardin. And one of the Oh yeah, I know
1: Valerie. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, one of the um, uh, the the people at the photo walk uh, asked me something and I answered and I said, hmm, I know that voice. Do you have a podcast? Yeah, sure I do. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't even remember my name but they did remember my voice. Right,
1: right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was, I was, where was it? One of the times, the last time that happened, I remember I was in Yellowstone um leading a workshop and I had some random person that was in Yellowstone so from Germany, so a German tourist, he came up to me and said, Are you one pause? I recognize your voice. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and I thought my workshop participants were playing a joke on me because it was, you know, they were pretty it was a pretty lively group. Uh, but no, it turned out to be, you know, somebody who um had just randomly heard my heard my voice and recognized. it. Good. Was kind of funny.
0: Kind of funny, yeah. Uh so I'll just give Give our audience a little uh, introduction to Juan Pons. Who is Juan Pons? You were born in uh, Puerto Rico and uh, you are a nature and wildlife photographer. So today we will be talking about traveling to faraway places where nature and wildlife abound. Um, Your passion is uh, photographing our world's magnificent wildlife and natural features. You're a strong supporter of wildlife and natural habitat conservation and a member of several conservation organizations. Uh, You sell photos directly to private individuals, but you also donate donate your images to non-profit organizations whose missions are the preservation of nature and wildlife. Uh, You have more than 30 years' experience in photography, you are a recognized expert in wildlife photography, lightroom and also maximizing the capabilities of DSLRs when shooting video. You travel extensively and you also teach uh, photography workshops with Munch workshops. Uh, you've also been featured on numerous publications including the Sierra magazine Nature Conservancy Conservancy Audubon magazine American Photo and others so quite an impressive resume and as i said you've been podcasting for some time i think uh, I got to know you through the Digital Experience podcast, the Digital Photo Experience. Sorry, I think, was that the right Yeah, name? yeah, yeah, that's right. And your current podcast is called Recompose.
1: That's, that's right. Um, yeah, we've actually had a, a pretty long history in podcasting. I've been podcasting continuously for about 10 years now, believe it or not. It's actually pretty surprising to me because, yeah, I, you know, I didn't remember, I you know, I had no idea how long I've been doing it until recently. I did an interview with somebody um, with Wilburard Lucas, who I actually interviewed about seven and a half years ago. Um, so it was kind of neat to go circle back with someone I interviewed such a long time ago, reminding me how long I've been doing this.
0: Do you ever listen to one of your first episodes and cringe?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, there's no question about that. <laughs> you know, although. It, it was funny because you know, I, I listened to that interview that I did with Will just prior to interviewing him. And, you know, I was and I was ready to cringe, you know, like you said. But I was actually pleasantly surprised how, how well that interview went. And Will and I talked about that, too. He listened to it as well. He's like, wow, that is pretty, pretty interesting how well that interview you know feels after this many years.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. It's so uh, well. well I don't think any of us were formally trained in, uh, right in the art of podcasting or radio broadcasting or any kind of uh this interviewing people and so on so I would say kudos to us for doing this <laughs> right. totally self trained or improvised if you. <laughs> Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, I think a lot of it is, you know, perseverance and just doing it. Yeah. You know, just like anything else in life, you know, working at something that uh, that you like that you're passionate about and um over time you figure it out and uh, you get better and better over time. So, as long as people can put up with you while you're not all that great, um you know, by the time you get pretty good at it, they're they're,
0: you know, they they enjoy it even more. Yeah, at some point I decided I want to do a podcast and I had no idea how to do it, but I said I'll just do it. Right. And I know many people say that that they started podcasts, and one of the mistakes they they made was not starting earlier, right? Because you, many people wait a lot of time until they they think they are ready for it, and you should just. I, my my belief is that you just uh, should just jump in and and do it
1: yeah but i i'm i'm surprised i mean you are at one hundred and six right yes um and a relatively short period of time so you've been cranking these out very very regularly
0: i've been uh, i'm proud to say i never missed an episode that is
1: it's that a, is amazing i mean because it is you know although a lot of these you know you i for example my podcasts are not really scripted we just come up with bullet points or things to talk about um you know there's still quite a bit of work as you got to line up people you got to be in front of the computer you got to record you got to edit you got to publish you don't get to promote it and all this kind so it is quite a bit of work so kudos to you for being able to do that you know so um, prolifically in 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 this amount of time because you know i'm at this point doing one every two weeks, mm-hmm. and you know that keeps that's you know enough for me. I can't do more than that just because I'm so busy with so many other things. So, you know, kudos to you for being able to keep up such a grueling schedule.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, uh, next week I'm uh, next Saturday I'm leaving. I'm going to Oman for uh, for a couple of weeks, and I I need to have, uh, if I want to publish regularly between me and my co-host Ralph Velasco, we know we need to. Uh, to get those recorded, uh, so this means uh, uh, at the last minute re- realizing that ah oh, we don't have enough episodes right. ready to go <laughs> for when we we, need, we are away, so we scramble to to find some guests and, uh, and do a recording and produce it, and it's a lot of work to yeah line up people, find guests. Uh, sometimes they'll just drop off. I don't know. I invite people. They say, "Okay, we should definitely do it. We will do it. So let's uh, let's uh, s- settle on a date and so on." And then just stop replying to your emails and I say, "Right, <laughs> what, what's happening?" And so you were sure you were going to have that <laughs> one in the can at some point, and it just disappears. So you scramble to find somebody else, and right, you know, it's, right, uh, right, it's right. a lot of fun. But yeah, all right, let's uh, uh, let's talk let's talk a bit about photography, not just podcasting, because I guess. Our audience here is more interested in photography than in podcasting, right. but it's it's <laughs> fun to talk about uh, podcasting as well. So I would like to ask you: um, How did you decide to become a photographer? What was the, the how was the moment when you decided uh, and you said, "I want to be a photographer"?
1: Well, you know, I guess I consider myself very fortunate in that um, when I was in high school in the US. I had an incredible photography teacher. My high school had a photography program. Uh, and just the summer before I started at that school, I had gotten a, a camera um, that I was playing around with. And uh, when I was placing a surprise at the school that I was going to, had a photography program and I, and I joined it and I had a wonderful, incredible teacher um, that I still stay in touch with to this day. We exchange emails, you know, once every year or something like that just to stay in touch. And she was absolutely incredible in that, you know, she taught me, you know, this was what, 25, 30 years ago, 30 years ago, more than 30 years, actually, um, She taught me the fundamentals of photography back in the day when we were shooting film. We shot, you know, all sorts of experimental type films as well as experienced and and experimented with all sorts of subjects and compositions and techniques. Um, And I credit her for, you know, really instilling in me the, you know, the passion and the love that I have for photography as well as giving me a rock solid foundation upon on which I've drawn, you know, all these years, over 30 years now. Um, you know, after high school, I went into college um, and I was uh, – my my plan at the time was going to go to medical school, um, but I still um, – you know, had the photography uh, passion in me, so I became the official school photographer for my university. Um And I worked as the photographer that took all sorts of images for, you know, internal as well as external publications for the school. So it, it was definitely the best job on campus because, you know, I paid incredibly well and, uh, um you know, it didn't have set hours. I could almost make my own hours except – for the times I was having to photograph a specific event, um, you know, and then after after that, I sort of switched gears from computer from uh, uh, going to medical school to computer science. Um, and as when I when when I got out of uh, university, I, um, you know, kind of went headlong into my career in computer science and my photography went a little bit um you know to the side I didn't do that much photography for a while for for quite a bit um but it was still in me I was still making images from time to time I was just just too busy sort of moving up in the in in the corporate world so to mm-hmm. speak um and then you know and and then I got back into photography um, I want to say in the mid-90s, somewhere around there, um, with with renewed vigor. I mean, I was really – I had moved to North Carolina where – I was living in Boston at the time and then I moved to North Carolina to a very sort of country setting where I had lots of wildlife around me and that's always been kind of my, my interest and passion. So I picked up the camera again and, um, you know, haven't put it down ever since.
0: So with so many years of experience in the world – realm of wildlife photography specifically and so many people nowadays that do photograph nature and wildlife do you think there is still something left to be photographed in that world?
1: I think so. I mean, the, there's lots of things that we still haven't experienced. There's a lot of places that are, you know, seldom seen or seldom explored. Um, but even that, you know, one of the things when I give talks about photography, wildlife photography, you know, I tell people that I consider myself incredibly fortunate that I get to go to some of the world's most amazing locations to make incredible images. But at the same time, I like to photograph around my house, you know, the areas around my, the place where I live, because um i can witness and see these locations you know much more often under different light conditions and under different weather conditions and under you know different times of the year different um breeding cycles for the animals so you know those are the places where oftentimes you can make images that are truly unique of a specific location that could be near you that people don't even, you know, had no idea these things were around you because you get to spend the, more time in visiting these places more often than you would some of these exotic locations. Um, but yeah, I mean, so there are lots of different things that you can photograph a lot of, you know, for example, one of the things I love to photograph and I don't show as much online or sell these. I love photographing insects and, rep- and reptiles and amphibians, um, small creatures But these are things that not a lot of people are interested in. Most of the things that people are interested in seeing online are going to be, you know, the big animals, the big mammals specifically, or big birds. Um, But there's plenty of room for you to make a uh, you know kind of a mark and develop your own style with you know relatively um uh unknown subjects or subjects that you don't see all that often. Um yeah we all like to photograph you know wolves and 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 bears and foxes and things. Those are all exciting. But to me some of these small animals like frogs, I love photographing frogs. You can make um uh images that are kind of unique and not very often Seen and there's still lots of places in the world that um, are very seldomly photographed that you can that you can visit if you have the means to do that and make some incredible images that have rarely been seen.
0: Yeah, and you live in Maine, if I'm right.
1: Right, yeah. I currently live in Maine now, which actually there's quite a bit of wildlife up yeah. here and uh, very. Out of the United States, um, in the lower 48, not including Alaska, Maine has the largest um, uh, forest, continuous forest in in the United States. So lots of lots of wood, lots of critters, lots of animals, lots of landscapes.
0: Yeah. So what I wanted to say is that you have quite a a bit of wilderness around you, forests and so on. Uh, you might be easy for you to. To find wildlife even at close distance from your home, uh, I live in Central Europe, is a very uh, heavily populated, industrialized area of the world. But right. still, uh, even close to here, uh, it's possible without without traveling. I mean, I, I I don't shoot wildlife, but I've had deer and boar cross the road while I was driving or cycling. Mm-hmm. I. Birds are everywhere. I mean, I wouldn't be able to tell an eagle from a sparrow, but I, I guess if somebody <laughs> was into bird photography, could find. And I live quite close to the Alps, so uh, you, you do One doesn't have to to think about Africa necessarily or uh, South Georgia Island to find wildlife. It's uh, luckily it's still pretty much everywhere.
1: Right. I mean, yeah, you're not going to find, you know, a wolf, you know, necessarily or a bison or uh, Mm -hmm. a bear in in New York City, let's say, or in in a big populated area, even though sometimes you do, but, you know. If you focus on maybe smaller animals or animals that are living amongst us in those type of situations and most people don't even realize. For example, coyotes and foxes are incredibly adaptable animals and they are, you know, across Europe proliferating in a lot of urban areas in the United States as well. They've actually seen them even in New York City. Um, So – to, to if you look close enough and if you focus on other animals, for example, birds, you can focus on or even some of the smaller reptilians and amphibians, you will find these in just about any setting. Even in New York City, you could go into Central Park and, and find all sorts of animals to photograph. So there's wildlife all about it. It's just you have to be patient. You have to look for it and you've got to learn about the wildlife you want to photograph so you, you know where to find them and when to find them.
0: I said that luckily we can still find wildlife pretty much everywhere, but if, well, we know very well that uh, humans are encroaching on uh, natural spaces and so on. And uh, the, the issue of conservation that I, I also mentioned when I was uh, uh, mentioning your bio is something that is very present and dear to you, I assume. Um, so I, I would like to ask... Do you think that photography can help the conservation effort, or is there a risk that by discovering all those new and beautiful locations, we are attracting crowds and doing nature a disservice? How can we, say, strike a balance here?
1: Well, yeah, and you're absolutely right, and it's true on both counts in that I think photography can can help conservation efforts by uh, um, shining a light on either specific habitats or specific species that may be in danger uh, or may be threatened and bring attention to those places. Um, but it can also serve as a negative, um, uh, can serve a negative effect, like you mentioned, by attracting people. So you have to be careful how you approach these locations, based on and the, or these subjects, based on you know where they are. What, how vulnerable they are, how likely they are to be, um, you know, threatened. But I think even more important is, you know, us as wildlife photographers, we need to be stewards for these subjects, for these animals, for these for these places. Oftentimes, you know, I, and I witness this quite often where photographers are so eager to make an image that they don't consider the welfare of their subject. Um, and I think that to me – You know, that is something that we as photographers, as wildlife photographers, need to pay pay a lot of attention to because we are setting an example. Um, And you will find oftentimes other types of people that are trying to enjoy that wildlife that may have a negative uh, conception of photographers because, you know – You know, one rotten apple can ruin it for a lot of us. So as photographers, I think we need to be very conscientious of our actions, make sure that we're always putting the welfare of our subjects, whether it's an animal or an environment, forefront. Oftentimes, you know, if I'm photographing in a sensitive location, which I've been fortunate to do that through uh, uh, some of the conservation organizations I've worked with in the past, Um, they've given me access to places that were sensitive um, and they didn't want to attract a lot of attention I make sure that I don't Necessarily disclose the locations that I remove, for example GPS information from the images that I post online, even though I post you know I, when I upload images online, I leave all the information that you know the, the xf information that's been captured. the only thing that I typically remove from those sensitive areas is going to be location information and and when people ask me where was this taken you know I'll tell them you know. Uh, you know, that I can't give Disclose specific locations When when those are sensitive But I think that If we are all Aware of what You know What our presence um, you know, ha- Effect What effect it has On our subjects And we do our best To try to mitigate those That's the best thing That we can do Is you know Try to respect And put the welfare Of our subjects First and foremost Above any image That you could ever make
0: Absolutely So we said, are you, we mentioned beautiful locations, but what are your favorite ones? Assuming you can reveal them in this case, (laughs) at least some of the ones that you can disclose. Yeah, no, I
1: mean, it, it. Yes, there are lots of locations that um, I'm fortunate, like I said earlier, that I get to travel quite a bit all over the world. As a matter of fact, when this podcast goes on air, I'm going to be in Antarctica. Um, So I do get to travel quite a bit. But, you know, no matter where I go, there are a few places that really um, uh, 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 I I never get tired of, that I'm always looking forward to going back to. And my absolute favorite location to go is uh, Yellowstone National Park in the United States. It is by far – The most beautiful um, uh, location that I've been to in that you can – not just beautiful but productive as well in that you can make incredible landscape work as well as incredible wildlife images – um, within a relatively small area, especially if you know it or you go with someone that knows the yeah, art really well. I've been running, um, I've been going there for many, many years. I've been running workshops in Yellowstone for over 10 years um, continuously, especially in the winter, being my favorite location, my favorite winter, my favorite season to be in Yellowstone. Um, uh, and I'm fortunate enough to go there for two or three weeks every year in the winter. Um, I love going to Alaska, different places in Alaska. Part of Alaska, part of the attraction of Alaska is that it is a wild quote unquote undiscovered country if you will and that there are so many wild places out there yes they've been seen and visited by other people but you, I can go to locations in Alaska where I'll be the only photographer for hundreds of miles around and be able to make some incredible images of some some creatures like muskox which are one of my ultimate favorite um, animals to photograph
0: I would like to do a little bit of gear talk here because many people say that gear doesn't matter but I Problem wildlife is one of those uh, genres where having that appropriate good gear is important, yes um, at least for subjects like birds that are maybe small and you cannot get really close that's uh, that that's important. so I would like to ask what's in your bag nowadays? what kind of uh, equipment do you shoot with?
1: Well um I was a canon photographer for many, many years. Um, but uh, about three years ago, I switched to a mirrorless system because I believe mirrorless is the way of the future. I think this is where, um, you know, photography is going and where it needs to go. So I shoot um, with the Sony, Sony system, Sony full-frame cameras I use. And my camera bag right now has a Sony A9 uh, that's mostly used for action and wildlife. Um, I have an a A7R um, mark two i'm awaiting the mark three to arrive in my mailbox any day now um and you know these cameras have become so good and uh, so incredibly uh adept at helping us photographers make great images that um you know in a way some of these challenging photography um opportunities are getting easier and easier to do but um, you know, they still require skill. They still require know-how. You still need to understand your subjects. You still need to know where to find your subjects. So although the gear is getting better and better every, every year, um, there's still no substitute for skill. So, you know, when people say that the equipment doesn't matter, they're they're right to a certain extent, but, you know, good equipment certainly helps and, uh, and ch- improves your chances of making great imagery for sure. Right. But, you know, the, the mirrorless, I mean, you should mirrorless as well. I think mirrorless... Is the way forward. I mean, just like to me, the, the advantages of digital over film were the fact that you had an immediacy in looking at your results. You didn't have to wait for your film to be developed, you know, uh, 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 to see what settings and um, what you got from that particular location. In a way, mirrorless is the same compared to a DSLR in that I can see the image and I can make adjustments to my image. While I'm looking through the viewfinder, I don't have to wait until I capture and chimp on the back of the camera to see what I've captured. I can see that through the viewfinder. I can see my histogram through the viewfinder and make adjustments make sure that my exposure is correct even before I press that shutter. Same thing with autofocus. Um I can actually see what parts of my image by by using focus peaking are in focus very easily by looking at the viewfinder. So just like digital improved and made the process easier for people
0: compared to film,
1: you know, it, I, I feel it's the same thing for,
0: for mirrorless. True. Uh, as you said, I shoot mirrorless myself. I shoot Fujifilm these days. And I'm a member of several online forums or facebook groups dedicated to the Fujifilm X system and i would, was thinking that if i had a, a cent for every time i heard people say that mirrorless cameras are not good enough for wildlife i would probably have enough money to join <laughs> one of your next workshops <laughs> right 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 <laughs> uh, so i guess we can we can tell those people that uh, you, you can shoot do great wildlife work even with mirrorless cameras and I know with Fuji, probably um, the system is not as, uh, in terms of lenses, is not as complete as it uh, could be. I think the longest, uh, probably the most suitable for a certain kind of wildlife on the X system is the 100 to 400 millimeters. Right. Uh, and of course, you have the crop factor, which gets you even closer. And then you have the focal length multiplier. So... Yeah, you have one long zoom. Uh, Probably there's uh, to be really mature in that field uh, that they need more lenses. But I mean, with that lens, you can probably can do great work.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no question about it. It used to be that, um, you know, I would shoot. My most used lens was a 500 millimeter, right, for wildlife. That used to be the case for many, many years. But nowadays, I'm finding that my 100-400 ends up being much better um, or much more used than my 500 for a number of reasons. The quality of these lenses has improved tremendously in the past even five years, Uh, the quality that we're seeing from these latest and greatest zoom lenses from different manufacturers is just outstanding compared to what we were seeing before. Even, you know, performing very, very well with teleconverters and having the portability of a smaller system versus a larger system makes it that much likely that you're going to get great images because you're not... um, uh, uh, uh you know dealing with large heavy um, equipment out there. for me, you know the three things that you're looking for when you're looking for uh, wildlife photography from an equipment perspective is going to be reach. you know we talked about you know we just talked about lenses and, and what you can use again the 100 400 being uh, today one of the most used lenses that I use for wildlife. then the next thing is going to be you know out of focus. Um, how good is the autofocus on the camera? And we're seeing, yeah, it was true at one point that most of the mirrorless systems, autofocus systems were not all that great. Um, and they were not, they couldn't keep up with uh, a lot of the wildlife. But you know what, that was the same case with the SLRs not that long ago. Um but nowadays, the mirrorless, you know, even are beating the DSLRs. For example, the A9 camera that I'm using, you know, has a, a better autofocus focus system than any other camera that's out there. Yeah, and, that, and that's my subjective opinion, but it's also been the opinion of many people who've done testing on the camera as well, is it's just that much better. Then the last thing that the mirrorless cameras had challenges with was the response times or, you know, how fast – um, the cameras could uh, adapt to a particular situation, especially on the viewfinder, the electronic viewfinders. The electronic viewfinders, for a long time, had a lag to them that made them very difficult to use for fast moving subjects like wildlife. Um, but that is also largely uh, been uh, uh, improved upon. So most of these cameras nowadays have very good and very responsive uh, viewfinders, the electronic viewfinders. So that is another issue that. That is no longer really uh, a concern in, in most cases. Yes, these were all issues at one point with mirrorless. But guess what? The same thing happened when we switched from film over to digital. The first digital camera systems, people complained about the autofocus system, the responsiveness of the camera. They were not fast enough to shoot wildlife. They couldn't do enough fast. They didn't have enough fast frame rates. And guess what? That changed. That improved over time. We're seeing the same thing now with mirrorless. You know, we go through these changes or these evolutions every every number of years, and we go through the same, you know, teeth gnashing that we hear from people. Oh, I can't do this. Oh, I can't do that. But, you know, it's just a matter of waiting. Technology is an incredible thing in how it advances, and the competition between all these can manufacturers has only gotten even more intense, which only benefits us.
0: Probably one of the... Areas in which a mirrorless system can have an edge is. Uh, at, I've been just thinking, I mean, just tell me if I'm completely wrong about this, but at night through a, an optical viewfinder, a DSLR viewfinder, you would not see much. With uh, an EVF, an electronic viewfinder, where the gain of the viewfinder can be brought up, you would be able to see quite well at night. You might get a grainy, a bit like picture, but it's still better than nothing.
1: Oh, absolutely. You're, you're absolutely correct. That's one of the, you know, what I would call secondary advantages to mirrorless is the fact that you have a much more um, uh, responsive or or brighter viewfinder, so you can actually see your subject. Not only can you see, you know, during normal light conditions, actually see how your your image is going to turn out even before you press the shutter, and you can see the histogram there, which to me is probably the most the biggest advantage to the mirrorless systems that electronic responsive electronic viewfinder. But the fact that you mentioned you can see even when it's much darker. It's absolutely a huge advantage. I can compose um uh, landscapes at night easily with my um mirrorless camera that would have been really hard to do or would have been at least trial and error with the SLRs.
0: Yep. Okay, so aside from the gear, which is an important part of the of the equation here in getting great wildlife photo, but as we said the, the most important piece of equipment one can have is it his own. Our own eyes and, and brains, I think. So, uh, living gear aside, from the moment for a moment, how can mm-hmm. uh, one make really compelling wildlife photos that stand out from the rest?
1: Well, I, you know, the 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 number one answer that I give to that question is understanding your subjects, knowing your subjects, understanding, um, you know. The preferred environments from you, for your subjects, they prefer the their behaviors, what's unique about them. Understanding your subjects is gonna allow you to position yourself um, to making at making the best images you can that show your subject in their best. Um, uh, uh, environment or in their best pose or in their best behavior out there. Yes, we sometimes get lucky, you know, including myself and able to make images of a subject I may not know all that well. But I can tell you that if you understand your subject and you study your subjects and you understand their behavior, their mating their 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 um uh, their preferred habitats and what kind of food they like to eat. You are not only going to position yourselves in the best locations to photograph those animals, but you're going to be able to anticipate and capture those moments that makes that bison a bison or that um, bighorn sheep a bighorn sheep. Because you'll be able to demonstrate a particular behavior that may be um, a particular to that one subject. So to me, that by far is the the best thing that you can do because not only will allow you to make those images, but you know understanding your subjects cascades into all sorts of areas, for example, you know and, and I'll give you an example many times I've been in um uh in Yellowstone in the spring, and people you know come and they'll see an elk and they'll be like, "Whoa, the elk you know either don't have antlers or they have short antlers. I thought that they would be mating you know, in the spring. Well, no elk mate in the fall during the rut season. And you can, um, you know, and they do this by gathering a harem of females and, you know, and the best images you're going to make are those when the harem is out protecting uh, the the male is protecting its harem so understanding that subject is not only going to get you to the locations where they they are not going to allow you to make the the best images but it's also going to get you to the locations at the right time and photographing the right environment the right uh, um behavior in the right environment
0: so aside from uh knowledge and preparedness i would say what are the other qualities that are essential to being a successful wildlife photographer can i maybe <clears throat> Try to name one.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, Patience. Patience. That's that's pretty (laughs) second. (laughs) That's the one
0: I was thinking of.
1: Yes. Patience is by far, you know, second most important to me because... Um, you know you, we can't control the animals we can't control what they do when we're out shooting wildlife yes and you know if you're shooting uh, uh captive animals which i don't do but if you're photographing captive animals yeah you can get them to do certain things but when you're out in, in in nature photographing true wildlife you can't control your subjects you have to be patient position yourself in the right spot and wait for things to happen and this is again going back to knowledge of your subjects, you know you can anticipate what an animal is going to do as you get to know them over time, more and more. So patience is by far, um, you know, the second most important in, in my book. Um, and then the third, which is kind of related to patience, is your tolerance for discomfort.
0: Because oh, yeah.
1: um, <laughs> oftentimes, I mean, I've been known to be in a in a in a, in a blind or a hide. You know, in very, very warm weather for uh, half a day where I'm drinking gallons of gallons of water to make an image. Um, you, you, because that's the situation where I found, for example, a, um, a fox den that I wanted to photograph the kids playing around. So in order for me to photograph them in their environment... And um, uh, in a natural environment, behaving as they normally would, I had to sit in this tent for about four or five hours for them to get used to me being there and for them to forget that I was there. So you have to have a high tolerance for discomfort in a lot of cases if you want to make unique and different images. Mm -hmm.
0: Right. True. Okay. Another question I want to ask you is uh, if you could talk to the one of 20 or 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. what would you tell him? Uh, or another way to phrase this uh, would be: Would you make the same choices and possibly the same mistakes you made twenty or thirty years ago, knowing what you know now?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Um, you know, because I'm a person that's always looking forward. I don't necessarily look, you know, back all that much. You know, I see what I'm doing now and see how I can improve it or do something different. But if I if I had to look back, um, I think I would have. Maybe not been so focused on my you know when I was a computer engineer as a, being so focused on on my on that career and maybe spend more time traveling and seeing some of the places I wanted to see, even though I was lucky enough to be able to do this at a relatively young age. you know I wish I would have done it even earlier than mm-hmm. that, so I had more opportunity to go and visit a lot of these locations so um, if anything else, I think I, you know I would have maybe not hesitated as much to switch careers and make this a full-time career for me and maybe go headlong into it even earlier than i did
0: i see and you said uh, the places you wanted to visit are there any places you still want to visit and you have not been to and let's say you could leave tomorrow and money was no concern where would you travel to and why
1: Well, I think, you know, top of my list is uh, Madagascar. I've always been wanting, wanting to go to Madagascar. And um, it's one of the places that I'm kind of trying to, at this point, make it a point to go in the next couple of years, because Madagascar is a very unique location in the way that the wildlife in Madagascar has evolved so separately from the mainland of of Africa. Um, very unique. You know, it's a it's a difficult place to go to because it's a very 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 poor country with very um, uh, very little infrastructure, but I think that between the the lemurs and the geckos and um, and chameleons and all sorts of other uh, reptiles and amphibians. You know, I could I could spend a couple years there photographing mm-hmm. and making images. So Madagascar is certainly on the on the top of my list, and um, I do want to spend a lot more time in South America. I think South America is an area that has not um, been explored photographically as much as it deserves. Um, there's still lots of areas that uh, have potential for uh, making incredible images uh areas that have not been explored as 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 much for photographers so that's another area that I, I'm, I'm making a point to spend a lot more time over the next couple of years
0: okay and uh, aside from your personal bucket list which which are the places you're going to next that you actually have planned for for personal trips or workshops
1: yeah, well, I'm, like I mentioned earlier, I'm about to – when this uh, podcast comes out, I'm going to be in Antarctica, and then I'm going to spend some time in Patagonia um, in Argentina for uh, a little while. Um, I'm going to be running my Yellowstone – my winter in Yellowstone workshops um, for three weeks this spring. I'm going to be going to Death Valley, um, Alaska. Then I'm going to Galapagos, Um Trying to think where else. I'm going to go photograph some grizzly bears up in British Columbia. Um, And trying to think what else. Uh, I'm going to be going up to Glacier and Yellowstone again in the fall. Um, and back to Antarctica and Patagonia next uh, next year as well. So that's, that's most of the locations I think I'm going to be going out to next year. Um, after that, I'm going to be heading out to Sri Lanka and Costa Rica, um, as well as uh, a couple more places in Alaska, and uh, a few more places that uh, are still kind of a, a surprise, if you will.
0: Okay. Any any particular workshop for which there are still spots left and people might <laughs> make up their mind about going soon before it the, the sells out?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. This is a, um, a, a a blessing and a curse at the same time. You know, we, we are very fortunate in that our trips sell out uh, relatively fast. Um, so we, you know, a lot of these trips for the, are are kind of being sold out very, very quickly, but some of the ones I still have spots on, which are, you know, absolute favorites of mine is photographing the grizzly bears in British Columbia. That, that trip is absolutely one of my favorite spectacular. We actually live within the bears and the last workshop um, that we were, that I did last August, we had bears that walked between us in my group. You know, I had a bear walking three feet away from me. And we were completely safe because these bears are focused on catching salmon. They don't care that we're there. They're used to seeing people there. We go to this camp that is very, very remote that we actually have to fly in by helicopter because there's no other way to get to this camp. And this camp has been there for about 30 years. So the bears that are there, that that the uh, people who run the camp have seen generations of these bears um grow up there so these bears are very familiar with people so that's one that we still have a few openings on that i think it's you know one of the most spectacular trips that that we do um i think i still have one spot in glacier national park and a few in the in yellowstone and certainly have a number of spots in antarctica Antarctic expedition in patagonia for next year
0: Okay, and where can people find more about uh, you and those workshops in particular and also about your podcast uh, in case people want to subscribe to it, which I yes. really recommend because I've been listening to a uh, few episodes and it's uh, it's really good.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so most of the um, – you can find links to all of those things at uh, my, uh, my mm-hmm. uh, web page which is juanpons.org. That's J-U-A-N-P-O-N S.org. O-R-G. Um, or you can also find me on Instagram and Facebook as well. I'm not as active on social media as a lot of other people out there, um, but you can still find me there and uh, link to my, uh, my site and my workshops and a link to the podcast um, by going there. And we'll have a hopefully a link on your show notes to, for people to find those as well.
0: Absolutely. I will put it there. Uh, and the post here will be at ttim.photo slash 106. So if people are listening can just jump there and check out your links. Uh, all right. Anything else you would like to add before we wrap this up?
1: Well, I just want to thank you again for inviting me on your podcast. I've known you, like I said, for a number of years because you, you've interacted with me. You know, we've interacted online quite a bit. Um, and uh, it was a pleasure to finally, uh, you know, speak live.
0: Yeah. Pleasure was mine. It was really a very interesting conversation. And so thanks again for, uh, for being our guest. And uh, all the best for your next trip. Uh, have fun in Antarctica. I will. I hope we
1: hope that the Drake Passage is going to be calm. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm hoping for, because, you know, it can be very, very rough um, Mm. or it can be very, very calm. So I'm I'm looking forward for it to being very calm.
0: That's going to be summer. But, you know, you never know, right?
1: Right. You never know. That's not
0: the kind of place where you can count on summer to be the sea to be quiet, I guess. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Thank you very much again. Goodbye.
1: Take care.